You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. everyone. Welcome to episode number 65 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. We ended last week's episode with the dramatic exit of Brigadier General Nathaniel Lyon from the Planner's House meeting in St. Louis on June 11, 1861. The others at the meeting, Congressman Frank Blair, Missouri State Guard Commander Sterling Price, Governor Jackson and Thomas Sneed, the governor's aide, they appeared stunned and troubled by Lyon's declaration and abrupt departure. Sneed recalled that the others rose to go and, quote, bade farewell to each other courteously and kindly and separated, Blair to fight for the Union, we for the land of our birth, end quote. Jackson and Price left St. Louis immediately and returned to Jefferson City, the state capital. There, Jackson wasted no time in issuing a proclamation officially mobilizing the Missouri State Guard and informing the people that, quote, wicked and unprincipled men acting in the name of the U.S. government had inflicted a series of unprovoked and unparalleled outrages, end quote, upon Missouri. And although the governor told the people that Missouri was still in the Union, he reminded them that, quote, your first allegiance is to your state. End quote. Anticipating that Lyon would soon descend upon Jefferson City, Jackson, Price, and a few legislators prepared to leave the state capital and go to Boonville, a town about 50 miles farther up the Missouri River, where they would lead a pro-Confederate government in exile and rally the state guard. Jackson and Price left the state capital none too soon. Within two days of the Planner's House meeting, Lyon and his command of federalized home guardsmen and a few U.S. regulars had left St. Louis, and on June 15th, they peacefully occupied Jefferson City. When he found out that Jackson had withdrawn northwest up the river and was in Boonville, Lyon quickly made plans to leave the state capital and strike at the governor. Lyon loaded 1,700 of his men onto steamboats, and early on the morning of June 17th, they disembarked about eight miles from Boonville. Lyon then marched his men up the river road, where he expected that the enemy would contest his progress somewhere along the way. Sterling Price had fallen sick, so the ragtag assembly of state guardsmen at Boonville was commanded by Governor Jackson's nephew, Colonel John Sappington Marmaduke. Marmaduke had graduated from West Point in 1857 and then served with the 7th U.S. Infantry. He resigned his commission only after Abraham Lincoln's call for troops to suppress the rebellion. 
On June 17th, when Jackson received word that Lyon had disembarked a strong force nearby, Marmaduke was against making a stand at Boonville, since he knew the untrained and poorly armed state guardsmen would be no match for Lyon's Federals. But Jackson was dead set against withdrawing without at least a show of resistance, and so Marmaduke reluctantly took about 500 of his raw militiamen down the river road to contest Lyon's advance and to buy some time for his uncle to evacuate men and supplies from Boonville. The resulting clash was hardly more than a minor skirmish. The ill-prepared Missouri State Guardsmen put up a brisk fight, but in short order they were routed by the Federals, and by 11 a.m. Lyon had accepted Boonville's surrender from a delegation of local citizens, but Marmaduke's brief defensive stand had given the still-defiant Jackson time to slip away. After their defeat at Boonville, the State Guardsmen trudged southwest, away from Boonville and away from Lyon and his victorious Federals. Meanwhile, the victory was touted in northern newspapers, usually with some play upon the federal commander's name. The Chicago Tribune proclaimed, Let the Lion Roar. A political cartoon was titled, The Battle of Boonville or the Great Missouri Lion Hunt. Another was captioned, Strayed, and depicted Governor Jackson as a donkey who had run away from Boonville after being frightened by a lion. Nathaniel Lyon's triumph at Boonville did have far-reaching consequences. Along with the seizure of Jefferson City, it robbed the governor of the apparatus of government, and, militarily, it secured central Missouri and the line of the Missouri River for the Union. And also, in driving the enemy to the south, it cut off Jackson and Price from potential recruits in the northern part of the state. Here, Civil War historian Bruce Catton summarizes the significance of what Lyon had accomplished. Quote, this fight at Boonville, the slightest of skirmishes by later standards, was in fact a very consequential victory for the federal government. Governor Jackson had been knocked loose from the control of his state, and the chance that Missouri could be carried bodily into the Southern Confederacy had gone glimmering. Jackson's administration was now, in effect, a government in exile, fleeing down the roads toward the Arkansas border, a disorganized body that would need a great deal of help from Jefferson Davis's government before it could give any substantial help in return. End quote. Sterling Price had risen from his sickbed but missed the fight at Boonville. When he learned of that defeat, Price, with only his staff and a small escort, headed south on a mission to make contact with the Confederates in my home state of Arkansas. While Price traveled quickly on that important mission, Governor Jackson would remain with the slower-moving, still-retreating State Guard. The plan was that Jackson and the State Guard would, would continue falling back to the southwest, hoping to eventually join forces with the Confederates who would move up from Arkansas. The move on Jefferson City was just part of Nathaniel Lyon's overall plan to secure Missouri for the Union. While he moved up the Missouri River from St. Louis toward the state capital, Lyon had also set a second force in motion. That column, a brigade commanded by Captain Thomas Sweeney, was to proceed to the southwest by rail from St. Louis to Rolla, and at Rolla, where the tracks ended, Sweeney's men were to march 110 miles to Springfield, the largest town in the southwestern corner of the state. 
Once Sweeney's column completed its move to Springfield, it would not only serve to secure that part of the state for the Union, but it would also be positioned to cut off the Missouri secessionists from the Confederate force in northwest Arkansas. So we have Lyon to the north at Boonville. We have Jackson and the State Guard heading south through the countryside toward the Arkansas border. But ahead of Jackson, in position to cut him off, is that second federal force at Springfield under Captain Sweeney. So theoretically, if Lyon could move south quickly and come up and attack the State Guard from the rear, the two federal commands could crush the enemy force between them. But in reality, Lyon didn't move quickly. Before marching away from the Missouri River and striking out into the countryside, he needed to assemble a supply train, so there was no immediate pursuit of Governor Jackson and the State Guard. Indeed, two weeks passed before Lyon moved south from Boonville. Meanwhile, Governor Jackson and the State Guard continued their march toward the Arkansas border, steadily collecting hundreds of eager, if completely green, volunteers as they moved through the Missouri countryside. The stage was thus set for a minor drama to play out as a portion of Sweeney's command engaged in a small but dramatic battle with Governor Jackson's ragtag force of state guardsmen. That battle came about because a column of federal troops under the command of Franz Ziegel had advanced beyond Springfield and then moved to intercept Jackson. Ziegel had made his way to the United States in 1852. He was a native of the Grand Duchy of Baden in Germany, having graduated from the Karlsruhe Military Academy there in 1843 and then served as a lieutenant in Baden's army. He fled Germany after the failed revolution of 1848. At the outbreak of our Civil War, Ziegel was leader of the large German-American community in St. Louis. When he offered his services to the Union, he was appointed Colonel of the 3rd Missouri Infantry. Siegel was a strict disciplinarian, and he'd relentlessly drilled his men in order to prepare them for combat. On June 23rd, Siegel's Germans had been the first federal troops to enter Springfield after marching there from the railhead at Rolla. After he reached Springfield, word reached Siegel that Governor Jackson and the State Guard were about 60 miles to the northwest. The aggressive German officer quickly decided to push his men west and try to catch the secessionists. Three days later, after marching about 50 miles from Springfield, Siegel learned that Sterling Price and some green secessionist recruits were encamped near Neosho, awaiting Confederate reinforcements from Arkansas before moving north to meet up with Jackson. Realizing he was now positioned between the two enemy forces, Siegel decided to attack Price and then turn on Jackson. But on June 29th, after moving out to confront Price, Siegel learned that the enemy troops camped near Neosho had fled, so he turned his attention to Governor Jackson's force to the north. From Neosho, Siegel spent the first three days of July sending out scouting parties to locate Jackson, before receiving word that the secessionists were encamped about 30 or so miles to the north, near the town of Lamar. And so on the evening of July 4th, Siegel left a company behind to guard Neosho, but marched the rest of his command 20 miles north to Carthage. There at Carthage, the troops under the Germans' command were about 550 men of the 3rd Missouri, around 400 men of the 5th Missouri, and also two artillery batteries with four guns each. Encamped north of Carthage, near Lamar, Governor Jackson commanded two batteries of artillery, 
about 1,500 horsemen, and around 4,500 infantry, which sounds pretty impressive, but 2,000 of the infantry were unarmed, and many of those who did have weapons were simply armed with whatever they had brought with them from home, hunting rifles or shotguns or old flintlocks and whatnot. Well, State Guard foragers skirmished with some of Siegel's pickets on the night of July 4th, and with that contact, Jackson realized he now faced a federal force that was blocking his route to the Arkansas border and that was blocking the avenue of approach for any Confederate help coming up from Arkansas. Although he was unsure of the strength of the enemy force, Jackson decided to move south toward Carthage the following morning and strike the Federals. Meanwhile, Siegel had also decided he would march the following morning and strike the enemy. The German realized he would be outnumbered, but he knew Jackson had no military experience, and he believed the governor's motley collection of state guardsmen would be no match for his own disciplined and well-equipped troops. The stage was thus set for a meeting engagement between the two opposing forces. On the morning of July 5th, the Federals would push north from Carthage, while the state guardsmen would march south toward the town. Somewhere in the countryside, the two columns of troops would collide. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get into the action, remember that, uh, and this is just to add some context to this fight in Missouri, but remember that it's taking place on July 5th, 1861, over two weeks before the big battle at Manassas back east in Virginia. 
Well, okay. So here in Missouri, on the morning of Friday, July 5th, uh, Ziegel's federal troops and Claiborne Fox Jackson's state guard met about 10 miles north of Carthage, at a spot where, from the south, the prairie descended in a long, gentle slope to a belt of trees bordering Coon Creek, and then the prairie rose again to a slight ridge. It was about 9 a.m. when Siegel and his 1,000 men, uh, advancing from the south, found the state guard waiting, deployed along that ridge north of the creek. In the federal ranks, Sergeant Otto Lademan observed that the state guard formed, quote, a dark line against the azure skies of the horizon, and three banners gaily floated over the line, end quote. Scanning the enemy's position, Siegel estimated Jackson had about 3,250 men in line of battle on the ridge. With seven guns and a strong force of infantry, not to mention cavalry posted on both flanks, the state guard appeared formidable, but nevertheless, Siegel decided to press on. The state guardsmen waited on the northern ridge while Siegel's troops descended the opposite slope, entered the trees, and crossed the creek, and then emerged onto the open grassland. One of the state guardsmen, Lieutenant William Barlow, later wrote that he looked down from the ridge and saw, quote, the bright guns of the Federal Battery and their finely uniformed infantry deploying on the green prairie, end quote. As the well-drilled Federals emerged from the trees, they deployed using precision maneuvering that the green and mostly untrained guardsmen watched with admiration. Just before 10 o'clock, with only about 800 yards separating the two sides, Siegel ordered his artillery to open fire. One Federal recalled that, quote, our German gunners were anxious to get into action and instill respect in the rebels, end quote. A state guardsman named John Bell, on the receiving end of that cannon fire, said, quote, We were ordered to lie down. To have seen those cannonballs rolling and bouncing through the grass as they sought the hilltop is a memory we cannot forget. End quote. The state guard guns replied to the federal cannon fire, and a rather ineffectual artillery duel commenced. Accounts differ as to how long the bombardment lasted, Estimates rage from 20 minutes to an hour, but however long it lasted, there came a point where the state guard commanders had had enough of it. On the state guard's right flank, the mounted forces started forward. At the opposite end of the state guard's line, the officer in command there independently ordered his horsemen to engage in the same maneuver, so that gradually cavalrymen began to move around Siegel's flanks. With enemy cavalry moving around both flanks, Siegel finally decided discretion was the better part of valor, and he decided to withdraw southward. Conducting an orderly withdrawal in the face of the enemy is one of the most difficult of all military maneuvers, but to his credit, Siegel never panicked, and so the hours that he had spent drilling his men now paid off. As the Federals retired southward, they managed to hold off the pursuing state guardsmen. Going back toward Carthage, Siegel's men made a determined stand at a ford at one of the watercourses they had crossed earlier that morning, Dry Fort Creek. There, in heavy fighting in the blistering heat, the Federals beat off vigorous State Guard infantry attacks. Siegel held his position at the Dry Fork Ford until finally, at about 1 p.m., with the enemy once again working around his flanks, he resumed his retreat. 
Unfortunately for the Federals, by that time, some ambitious State Guard cavalrymen had moved to block their path at the next stream crossing to the south at Buck Branch. But just when it seemed as if the State Guard horsemen would hold the Federals in place until their infantry comrades could arrive, Siegel's men cleared the way with a bayonet charge and reopened the escape route. Before reaching Carthage, Siegel made his final defensive stand about a half mile north of the Spring River. That allowed him to safely shift his wagon train across the river and back into the town. Once he'd reached Carthage, Siegel had hoped to give his men some time to rest, but the pursuing state guardsmen were still hot on his heels, so the federal commander had no choice but to order his weary men to continue their retreat. After fighting through the streets of Carthage, at 9 p.m. the determined state guardsmen launched a final, unsuccessful assault on the federal rear guard just east of the town, and then darkness and exhaustion finally put an end to the day's fighting. Jackson's tired men rested in Carthage, two played out to continue the pursuit. Meanwhile, Siegel's column safely retreated to the southeast, eventually rejoining the rest of Sweeney's force in Springfield several days later. Despite the intense fighting, casualties were relatively light. Only about 75 state guardsmen were killed, wounded, or missing, while Siegel lost just over half that number. Although the combat at the Battle of Carthage was hardly more than a respectably sized skirmish by the standards of the war's later battles, both sides had engaged in a difficult, physically exhausting, 12-hour running fight in the intense July heat, and when all was said and done, both sides, with some justification, claimed victory. Siegel's small force had saved themselves from destruction by brilliantly carrying out one of the most difficult of all military maneuvers, an orderly withdrawal while under fire. But on the other hand, had Siegel shown more sense in considering whether or not to fight the battle, the Federal troops may not have found themselves in such a predicament in the first place. Nevertheless, Siegel was touted as a great hero in northern newspapers. One paper gushed that his withdrawal at Carthage was masterly and, quote, a more admirable display of military science has never been witnessed in this country, end quote. And just a bit of foreshadowing, but Siegel's newfound status as a military mastermind will have important consequences for the Federal Army that will fight at Wilson's Creek when we'll see Lyon agree to an extremely risky plan of attack proposed by Siegel. On the other side of the battlefield, the Missouri State Guard had redeemed itself after the boondoggle at Boonville. At the Battle of Carthage, the raw troops had fought well and earned valuable combat experience while driving the enemy from the field. But while Claiborne Fox Jackson earned the distinction of being the only sitting governor to lead troops in battle during the Civil War, he apparently actually gave few commands on the battlefield. In fact, there was a noticeable lack of a unified command structure for the State Guard during the battle, and a number of State Guard officers simply made independent decisions as the fighting progressed. If instead of Jackson, a capable military officer had been in overall command during the engagement, it's likely the greatly outnumbered enemy force could have been wiped out. In the assessment of John Hughes, commanding one of the State Guard regiments, quote, 
a vigorous, concerted effort of the infantry and cavalry would have captured the entire army. End quote. Nevertheless, even though Siegel and his men escaped destruction, Jackson and his men had successfully cleared the way into the far southwestern corner of Missouri, where they could finally link up with Sterling Price again, and more importantly, the Missourians could finally join forces with Confederate allies from Arkansas. Once that happened, the Missourians were confident they could turn about and rescue their state from the oppressive federal yoke that had been forced upon it. One optimistic state guard officer wrote that the, quote, government of Missouri must be reestablished and the liberties of the people restored. When we return, this is our motto, we come to deliver you, end quote. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Civil War in Missouri, A Military History, by Louis S. Gertheis. Gertheis is professor of history at the University of Missouri, St. Louis, and this book, as it says, is a military history of the Civil War in Missouri. So it doesn't focus so much on the vicious guerrilla warfare that tore apart much of the state, but instead it focuses on the conventional warfare and military campaigns that took place in Missouri. So that's The Civil War in Missouri, A Military History, by Louis Gertheis. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Y'all can also go to the website to donate at least $10 to support the podcast and qualify for our March Madness t-shirt giveaway, which we told y'all about last week. And this past week, Ellis A. from Georgia, Peter K. from Sweden, Kathleen L. from New Zealand, and Charles D. from North Carolina qualified for a chance to win the t-shirt, so their names will go into the hat for the drawing on March 30th. Good luck, y'all. And in case you didn't see the podcast t-shirts that Tracy and I wore at Gettysburg when we posted some photos uh, last summer from that trip, this past week we did put up a photo of the t-shirt on both the website and Facebook so that you can see what the shirt we're giving away looks like. All right, I think that's about it for now, so... So thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, we'll start our coverage of the Battle of Wilson's Creek. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.